Wednesday, June 28th, 2023, and welcome to episode 237 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. I'm Morgan Vigna, Senior Fellow at NSI, and I'm joined by Jamil Jaffer, NSI's Founder and Executive Director, and Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we are talking about the future of the Wagner Group's operations in Africa. Now, the head of the organization, Yegevny Prigozhin, has been exiled to Belarus following his rebellion against Vladimir Putin last weekend. For more on this short-lived March on Moscow, check out Monday's episode. Now, Wagner, this paramilitary mercenary group, has personnel not just in Ukraine, but in Syria and across Africa as well. Their presence in Africa is particularly noteworthy given that it has bolstered the Russian government's presence in countries like Libya, Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic. Wagner has been embedded within African governments, controlled mines, and fought in the field, killing armed fighters as well as civilians, often indiscriminately. While it is unclear if and how Prigozhin will continue to run his forces across Africa, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov assured governments of Mali and the Central African Republic that, was, that there was no change in their security arrangements. And in a new turn yesterday, President Biden's Treasury Department rolled out a new package of sanctions against Prigozhin and several groups affiliated with the organization, targeting Wagner's activities in the CAR. So, Les, let's start with you. As the United States clearly cares about Wagner's role in Ukraine, as well as the destabilizing effects the group has had in Syria, why is Wagner's presence in Africa significant for U.S. interests? Well, it's not just because Wagner is a bunch of Russian bad guys. That's not the end of the story. The, the real issue, I think, in Africa is that these African nations need Wagner or something like Wagner in order to function as a government. Uh, Mali and the Central African Republic are both effectively controlled by agents of Wagner right now. Both of those countries are fighting insurgencies from uh, Islamic fundamentalists, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, what have you, and they're unable, to, those governments are unable to do it on their own. And so they turn to the Wagner group uh, as a way to sustain their government and their, and their nation state. One of the real issues, I think here, Morgan, is the failure of U.S. policy over decades, going back to the 1990s, to provide an alternative to African countries that are in this situation. We don't do security assistance very well. We're neuralgic about it. We get worried about human rights abuses and that kind of thing. Some of that is fine, but it, it's gotten us to the point where we're unable to provide this essential service that governments in Africa need. Why do those, those African governments matter? They've got a ton of natural resources. There's humanitarian issues. There's reasons we care about those countries. We should find a way to deal with them and so that they don't have to turn to Wagner Group. Jamil? Yeah, look, I, mean, I, think, I think less is right, but also wrong in significant ways. So I don't think we could throw human rights out the door and say, well, you know, we should just go support every, every tin pot dictator in Africa because, you know, we really need the resources. I mean, then we're just the Russians and the Chinese, right? And there's no real morality behind it. I think that it is critical uh, that we're able to balance both our values and our interests. And I think there's a way to do that, right? Um, um, I also don't think it's fair to say that these leaders of the CAR in Mali are agents of Wagner. They certainly are empowered by Wagner. Uh, they're there um, because they're, they're staying in power and are safe in power uh, because of Wagner. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't call them agents of, I think that's, that's probably an, an overstatement. Um, any more than, uh, you know, the Malian government for a long time was an agent of the French government because the French government propped them up and, and provided security assistance there as well. And so 
don't think that's a fair a fair assessment. That being said, the Russians clearly know how important uh, these countries are from a resource perspective. Wagner's out there by accident. They're not there just to enrich Yevgeny Prigozhin, although that's an important benefit. Uh, they're there to carry out Russian state instructions and carry out Russian influence um, in those countries. And think about it, having the immediate bodyguards around the president, they know everything the president is doing, everything the president is thinking. They govern whether the president's going to live or not. And so it's no surprise that in a lot of these countries, Yevgeny Prigozhin and Russian companies get a lot of contracts for mining and mineral and other mineral extraction and the like. It's partly because the guys with guns around the president are, are wholly owned and operated subsidiaries or, or, or you know, uh, employees of the Wagner Group and the Russian government. Yeah, so while, you know, Prigozhin right now is in a figurative and potentially at some point a literal box, um, where, where does Wagner go from here? Um, do they continue their operations in Africa? Um, are they going to be on hiatus for some point? How does the Russian government manage Wagner at this point? Well, I think that's in a way a separate question. You know, there's, there's maybe some legal issues in the Russian system about how you can provide this kind of assistance. It's possible the Russian government itself doesn't want to do it directly. They want to have a cutout. But at the end of the day, the Wagner group is, is meeting a need in these countries. And, and to push back against you a little bit, Jamil, I think there's a huge risk that the, the leadership of these African countries is now being is so beholden to the Wagner group for the services it's providing that they're really little more than figureheads at this point. Maybe. They, they couldn't extricate the Wagner group if they wanted to. That is the real risk here that these these countries, which are, you know, kind of have a huge capacity issue to begin with. Are, are not going to be able to push out the folks who are actually getting the job done and protecting the president and providing security in the capital, and then also taking the fight to these uh, these rebellious uh, terrorist groups. H- how How is some president going to then tell them they have to leave? In a lot of cases, it's the Wagner fighters who are heroes in those countries for yeah. providing that stability. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Look, I mean, I think, Morgan, to your question, I think the way the Russian government's going to have to work it, they want that influence to remain, regardless of whether they hate Prigozhin or they don't like what the Wagner fighters in Russia did. These guys didn't actually, you know, engage in the mutiny or the like. They're there doing, still doing the Russian government's bidding. Chances are, if they think they are loyal, maybe they send some folks there to make sure they're loyal, um, but, but sort of Russian government folks in charge of them. But my guess is they keep operating with them. They're not going to be able to make them part of the Russian military, I don't think, effectively out there. And so uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's probably, you know, just the Wagner group by a different name. Yeah. So the United States has never, frankly, really prioritized the African continent, particularly when it comes to defense and security. Now would seem a really good time to take advantage of of this situation. Really quick, Lester, how do you think the United States should should move forward? Uh, so I think Congress has to reconsider some of the limitations it puts on security assistance. I think the administration needs to think more creatively about its approaches in these areas. We're a little bit too reliant on kind of official multilateral structures and peacekeeping organizations from the UN or the AU or that kind of thing. We need to be more creative. We need to um, to explore new options. And Congress should give the administration a little latitude to explore those things. Yeah. There's no chance we're going to bother those things happening. Congress is not going to lighten up on the human rights laws. Uh, particularly not with a with a Democrat controlled Senate um, and the and the Biden administration. There's no chance they're going to get engaged in more adventures um, overseas, particularly not in Africa, where they don't see a real benefit. Um, I would be shocked if those things happen. I think I think you and Les are right. It should happen. 
This administration, we're, this Congress will not do those things. We're already engaged in those countries. Let's do it in a smart way. We're going to spend yeah, this money agreed. anyway. They Let's won't. do it in a way that's actually effective. That's a wrap. Thanks to Brooke Agacant from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help in producing today's episode. Please join us again on Friday for another episode of Fault Lines, the podcast that gets you smart fast on the national security debates shaking up America. Fault Lines is also now on YouTube, so check out our podcast video on NSI's YouTube page. And if you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts.